All right, so good morning, everybody, and uh, we're going to continue our study this morning of uh, the life and the epistles of Peter. So if you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, where we'll spend uh, most of our time this morning. Um, so just uh, no, one more time, let's go through this uh, refresher. So we talked about 1st, 2nd Peter, each having an overall theme. Um, the theme of 1st Peter is dangers from where? Where is Peter warning them about uh, potential dangers? All right, dangers from outside of the church, right? So he's going to warn them about persecutions and things they would experience in the coming years, um, largely due to changes that were taking place in the Roman government. Um, Nero was soon to be coming into power, and that would lead to um, a large persecution of Christians um, during that time. And a key verse for 1 Peter is 1 Peter 4, verse 16. Um, which states, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And we see a lot of times in 1 Peter the use of the word suffer. Uh, it's used 14 times throughout the epistle with additional words like testing and trials um, also being um, uh, prevalent. In contrast, 2 Peter is going to be talking about dangers coming from inside the church. So largely, Peter was writing to them about um, false teachers and blasphemers. And a key verse there is 2 Peter 2 in verse 1, which states, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And one of our key words from 2 Peter, as we'll see later on this quarter, is um, used uh, 16 times, and it's the way that we combat false teachers and blasphemers. And what is that tool we need to combat the false teachings? Knowledge, exactly. So truth, understanding, knowledge. And that's what Peter will stress in that epistle as a way of dealing with the false teachers and the blasphemers. All right, so um, here's our timeline for the life of Peter. Um, we've looked at a couple times already. We're going to look at two specific events in Peter's life during class today. Um, the first of those is when he interacts with Jesus. And Jesus asks him, Peter and all the apostles, who do men say that I am? And Peter's going to say, you are Christ, the Son of God. Jesus will then reply, upon this rock I will build my church. Um, and that's also when he renamed Simon to be Peter. Um, that's going to fall um, during the uh, time that Peter and Christ were on earth uh, together, during those three years of Christ's ministry. And then we'll also look as well at an event that takes place after Peter preaches the gospel sermon on Pentecost, when he and John are arrested and they are instructed by uh, the Jewish leaders to no longer speak about these things. And they will say, we can't help but speak about these things that we have seen and heard. So we'll spend some time on those two passages um, during our time today as well. All right, so we asked this question uh, again last week. And so we'll review again today a little bit. So what are some of the evidences that Peter was a leader among the apostles and the early Christians? 
What are things that we see in the Gospels, within Acts, that give us indications about Peter's role in his leadership? All right, he would be the first to preach the Gospel sermon on Pentecost to the Jews um, and also to Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10. He and who? He, sorry, I didn't catch what you said. He and Paul were, were debating in front of the elders in Rome about the, the Greek and what they needed, or the Gentiles and what they needed to do. That's right, and Paul says, I withstood him to the face because of this. So he, he and Paul had a, had a face-to-face confrontation about um, sort of the, the implications of taking these Jewish traditions and trying to force them upon uh, the Gentiles. Anything else you can think of? That's right. In all of our list of the apostles, he was always the first one put in the list by several different authors and writers. He was also part of Jesus's inner core right, that those, those three that Jesus carried with him and had these special interactions with, the, uh, the transfiguration and also within the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John. That's right. So Peter was, by nature, a very impulsive person. He spoke oftentimes before he thought, and he got reprimanded for that on a few occasions. Um, but yeah, he was impulsive, and he's always the one to speak up. That took place as well as on the, the Mountain Transfiguration, um, but also in the early days after Christ's ascension. He was the one that spoke up and said, you know, we've got to uh, appoint another person to replace Judas. And that would lead to Matthias being appointed as um, another apostle. Um, Peter is the apostle whose name is mentioned the most number of times within the New Testament, um, even greater than the number of Paul or James or other apostles. Um, Peter's name was mentioned uh, by far the largest number of times in the New Testament. So we have lots of evidences that he was, in fact, a leader amongst the church. Um, but we also know from, his, from stories about him that he was very impulsive, and he oftentimes spoke and acted before he really thought things through. All right, and we talked about how uh, John, Paul, and Peter um, each wrote about, if you describe their writings in one word, John's word was love. Paul wrote a lot about faith, and then one of the overall uh, kind of themes across both um, epistles of Peter is this idea of hope. Hope to get you through the persecutions, hope to get you through the time we have on earth. All right, and then last week we talked about um, Peter making a plea for these early Christians um, to have hope and to love one another, as well as he asked them to be holy, to be set apart, all right? And then he used three different motivations to try to instill in them this, uh, this uh, plea 
to be holy and to be set apart from those who were around them. And the intrinsic motivation he described was going to be hope, all right? Use that hope as that intrinsic motivation to stay pure, to stay holy, to stay set apart. And then what was that positive extrinsic motivation that he reminded them about? Right, the promises, heaven, right? Our inheritance, that was that extrinsic motivation. He says, keep that promise in mind, heaven, your inheritance. That's going to be what you look forward to on the other end. And then what was that, I hesitate to use the word negative, but we'll throw it in there. Um, what was that negative motivating factor he told them about? Right, God and be reverent, be fearful of God because God will punish those who are not holy, those who do not follow those scriptures. So hope, the promises, and that reverent fear of God are the three things that he uses to motivate these Christians to maintain their love for each other, and also as well to be set apart and holy during their time on earth. All right, so for our class today, we're going to look at the next section of 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 4, and then we'll, we'll finish up chapter 2 today. And I've titled this lesson, A Royal Priesthood Upon the Cornerstone. All right, so this is an outline for chapter 2, all right? Chapter 2 is going to be all about Christian relationships, and he's going to describe really four relationships in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, which we won't get to this until next, uh, well, I guess two weeks from now, um, will be a fifth relationship with our spouses. All right, but for chapter 2, these first four things on the list is going to be our outline for class today. Peter's going to spend the first part of this chapter describing our relationship with Christ. He's going to talk about the, the Christ being the cornerstone upon which we are built. And then we're going to switch over and talk about our relationships with the world. And then how we relate to civil authorities and government. And then finally, how we relate to our masters. He's looking specifically at the slave-master relationship, but this carries over into how we relate to you know, our teachers at school, our employers at work, anyone who has authority over us. What's our obligation and responsibility when interacting with those who have that kind of uh, positions of authority? All right, so we're going to look at each one of these four in turn. And then again, chapter 3, he'll switch over to spousal relationships. But that will not be covered today. We'll cover that in two weeks um, because next week is a fifth Sunday, so we won't have class. Um, we have a guest speaker coming in next Sunday. Okay, so let's read this uh, first section right here, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and this is a quote from Isaiah 28 and verse 16, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, 
But for those who do not believe, and he's going to quote from Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's from Isaiah 8, verse 14. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And then beginning in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Um, Psalm 118 verse 22 is a prophecy about Christ. And this prophecy is actually quoted several times throughout scriptures and alluded to when not quoted directly. But that prophecy is using this analogy of Christ as being a cornerstone. Now, when I was a teenager, um, my dad and my mom decided they were going to go into the restaurant business. And so they were going to build a restaurant, and we operated a restaurant um, when I was, you know, a teenager and throughout college. But uh, we were going to build it ourselves. And so one summer, my brother and I and my dad, we built a building that was going to be a restaurant. And I remember digging out the, the footer for that foundation. And then once we had the footer dug out, we started laying that cinder block foundation. It's going to have a crawl space underneath it. And I remember my dad taking string and marking the four corners of the building and then taking string and linking the four corners together. And then he took great care when he laying that very first cinder block. It had to be perfectly level. It had to be perfectly squared with the four corners of this foundation because that one cinder block that was laid down would dictate everything else about this building. Would the floors be level? Would it be square or would it have some weird off square, you know, shape to it? Was it pointing in just the right direction relative to the driveway and everything else? The cornerstone, that first block laid down, it carried everything else with it. From that point forward, everything relied upon the location, the, the levelness, and also the orientation of that one block. That's what the cornerstone is. That's what we are built upon. In these verses, Peter is using this analogy of us being a building, a temple of God. And we are being built up constantly. We are always learning and growing. We are being constructed throughout our time on earth. But the cornerstone for us, our building, is Christ. And this word cornerstone was used back in Psalm 118. And then it's referenced again several times in the New Testament. Um, turn over, if you, if you want to, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Paul writes, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the apostles and prophets, 
those men of God, they are our foundation. But who was the cornerstone of the foundation? Well, he says, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Paul writes there that we are built upon the foundation of many men who came before us. Apostles, prophets, so many people have built our foundation, but one person was the key. One person was the cornerstone of that foundation, and that is Christ. Um, Ephesians 4.16 is the theme for Asheville Road here in this calendar year. And what's our, what's our like two words for our theme for the year based on Ephesians 4.16? Fitted together, exactly. Christ is that central piece, and we are built around Christ, and our church collaboratively is also built around Christ. This theme of cornerstone is also um, used in Ephesians 4.16 as Christ being the center upon which we are all fitted together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 12. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder. I laid the foundation, and someone else is building upon it. So once again, Paul is saying, I'm helping build your foundation, and others are continually building this building, which is you. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Christ is the foundation, the center of the foundation. And then later in that same passage, um, a verse that many of you have, have heard and quoted, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So we are not just a building. We're going to carry the analogy one step further. We are a specific building. We are a temple. Now, what was the purpose of the temple, in, or the tabernacle even, in the Old Testament? What role did it serve? All right, it was a location of worship, exactly. The temple or the tabernacle, which was around before the temple, was an, a geographical location where the Jews could worship. But it was more than just a place of worship. Who resided in the temple? The presence of God. The temple was the dwelling place of God, and the temple was a place of worship. But uh, Peter and also Paul in his writings are telling us that we no longer have a temple to go to to worship and be in the presence of God because what's being built right here? A temple. We are a walking worship location and God is dwelling within us. We are the replacement of the temple of the Old Testament. We are being built up. Christ is our cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets laid the foundation. We're constantly being built over time. And we now are the location where God resides within us. 
and we no longer need a priest to go to and to act on our behalf by approaching God because we have direct access to God. We are a royal priesthood ourselves. Linda. Um, which, which verse are you looking at? Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Oh, uh, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. So when I was a kid, people always used this verse to say, you know, don't put bad stuff in your body, right? Don't smoke, don't drink, don't do bad stuff, don't get tattoos, like all that stuff, because you're defiling the temple of God. Um, I don't think that's what Paul's really writing about in that case. Destroying the temple would mean destroying um, our relationship with God. You know, when Rome came in and destroyed the temple, the Jews had no place to go to worship God, all right? And they had to re resort to synagogues, and synagogues evolved from that lack of a temple. Um, and God had no place, in theory, to be, to reside within that most holy place. Well, we are the temple, so you can destroy us physically, but he's talking about, I think, a spiritual defilement of the temple. When we defile ourselves spiritually through sin then God is not going to reside within us. So I think that's what he's referring to is that spiritual destruction, defilement of the temple of God rather than a physical defilement um, that some people kind of use that verse to imply. That's my take on it at least. Other thoughts about that? Well, this is, this is a building. Yeah, well, just, I mean, I think it's important to remember that this is a physical building. It's a location where we assemble to bring worship to God. But why? But, but no, what I'm saying is, but why are we bringing worship to God? Why would you say this place is holy? It was because of all the people that are here very close together. You know, we are all temples of God. And when we all assemble together, you're bringing multiple temples of God together for a collaborative worship. Now, that could be done within this building. It could be done out on the parking lot or at someone's home. But the building is not the holy place any longer like the temple of the Old Testament was. We are the temples of God. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's important to, to not, you know, dishonor this physical building uh, because it is where we assemble together. And we think of it as being a special place because we know this is where we assemble together the first of every week and, you know, midweek on Wednesday to worship and to study. Um, but we can't put too much emphasis on the physical building because it's not the holy place. We, as Christians, we are the holy place. Well, the next section is we're going to get on that 
very point. How do we relate to the world? So, so we'll, we'll move on to that point in just, in just a minute. Um, one other uh, passage I wanted to bring up, and we don't have a lot of time to spend on it, but uh, this idea of a cornerstone, I want you to think back to uh, that dream of Nebuchadnezzar back in Daniel chapter 2. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, he had a dream of uh, a statue with, you know, a head of, a head of gold and then the chest and arms and then the, 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 the legs and feet. And then what was cut out of the mountain that was going to destroy this statue? A stone, exactly. All right. So a stone cut out without hands struck the statue and destroyed it. That stone, Christ is going to allude to once again, this idea of a stone or a rock that would destroy the earthly governments, the earthly things, and would set up a spiritual place, the church. So this idea of a cornerstone, a stone, a rock, is really threaded throughout multiple locations in scriptures and that's what, uh, that's what Peter's referencing here um, in the early part of chapter 2 that we are being built around. Now, let's flip over to Matthew 16, all right? Because that's where we want to spend a little bit of time looking at um, his interaction with Peter. So Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, Peter's name means rock or stone, Petra, Petros. And Peter's writing here in the book of 1 Peter about this cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. Now he's borrowing that language from um, the writer of Psalm 118, who said in a prophecy that there will be a cornerstone set up. So just think in your mind, as Peter is pinning these words, he's thinking back to Isaiah and to Psalm, and he's quoting those scriptures, right? But he's also thinking about his own name. My name means rock or stone. Christ gave me this name for a reason. And so just think about what's going through his head as he's pinning these words, talking about, you know, Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Can you imagine the weight of that being on you? That all these prophecies talking about Christ being the cornerstone, Christ names you Peter or rock, 
and says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, the rock is not Peter himself. The rock is the confession that I am or you are Christ, the son of the living God. But all of this is working through Peter's mind as he's writing these words about the, the meaning of rock, the role of the cornerstone in our spiritual temples, and his own name means rock or stone. So I can only imagine that it was, you know, a pretty heavy weight that he was carrying, knowing his own importance in this whole process. Christ gave him the name Peter, right, for a reason. Um, other descriptors that are used for Christians uh, in, this, uh, in this passage, starting in verse 9, uh, it's really a beautiful language here. He says, not only are you a building or a temple, but you're also a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All right, that's you. You are a temple. You are a chosen race. You were selected or elected by God. God's chosen people originally were Israelites, the descendants of Abraham. He guarded, he protected the Israelites. Just think about all the events that took place around the time of their exodus from Israel, right? He performed mighty wonders to ensure that they were delivered from Egypt, the ten plagues. He parted the Red Sea so they could cross on dry land. He fed them throughout their time in the wilderness. He led them into battle when they um, retook the land of Canaan, right? He fiercely protected and guarded his chosen people. But now, you are his chosen people. And just as much as he would guard and protect the Israelites, he's going to ensure our safety as well. He's going to guard and protect us just as he did the Israelites. All right, we are a royal priesthood. Again, we don't rely upon another person, a third party, to go to God on our behalf. We are our own priests, and we have direct access to God ourselves through prayer, bringing to him petitions, and then he speaks to us directly again through scriptures that we all have right here in our hands. We have the words of God right here. We don't rely upon a priest or some prophet to tell us what God is saying. We have his words directly in front of us. Um, a holy nation, we are set apart. And then also a people for his own possession. Um, similar language is used in Malachi, verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Malachi wrote in 4:17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not, belong, or does not serve him. So the language here, my treasured possession. Take for a minute, think about what are your treasured possessions. All right, what do you have at home that you value greatly? Maybe it's something handed down from your parents or grandparents. Maybe it was a special gift from your spouse or your children. All right, what are your treasured possessions? Maybe it is your children themselves. 
how much effort would you spend to protect those treasured possessions? God will expend equal or greater amounts of effort to protect us. Because Malachi says here that we are his treasured possessions. All right, and Peter says that we are a people for his own possession. We are the possessions of God. And just like he did for the Israelites, he will protect us and guard us just as much. And that's part of the hope that Peter is going to be talking about is, right, you have assurances. You have hope because you are a royal priesthood, because you are a chosen generation, because you are a prized possession of God. That is reason to have hope that you're going to make it through the persecutions of earth. God is going to guard you despite what you may think is going to happen because he values you greatly. You are his treasured possession. All right, we spent too much time on that, so we're going to have to kind of move through these other ones a little bit quicker here. So beginning in verse 11, we're going to pivot over to um, our relationship with the world. So beginning in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Uh, we had a class recently uh, taught, I think by Tim, um, residents of earth, citizens of heaven. Right, We live on earth, but our citizenship is somewhere else in heaven. And Peter says right here in verse 11, um, you are sojourners and exiles. You're travelers. You are not at your home. You are somewhere else. So think about when you go on a trip for work or to visit friends or family, maybe even vacation. Right, It's all good to be away, but... If you're like me, when you get to come home and be in your own house, you have your own chair to sit in, you have your own bed and pillow to sleep on, right? How wonderful is it to finally be back home and take a deep breath? <sighs> I made it. I'm back in my happy place. My home, my chair, my bed, right? That's what he's saying right here is, you are exiles, you're travelers here on earth. This is not your home. Right? We sing that song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Right? Our ultimate home is going to be in heaven. But while we're here, while we're visiting earth, we have some responsibilities. And he says... Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Um, this idea of waging war against the soul, um, I like to watch um, movies and TV shows about like spies and like political intrigue. And, you know, you always have this like scientist who, you know, wants to defect away from a foreign country and come to the United States Right? He wants to give up his citizenship in some foreign, evil country and come over to the U.S. and become an American. He wants to defect. Right? And then all these spies and governments are fighting over, they're battling for 
right? Who's going to get this guy or this girl and all what they know and what they can do? Because they have valuable, you know, knowledge or skill that both governments are fighting after. Satan is the exact same way. Satan is warring after our citizenship. We can be citizens of earth or we can be citizens of heaven. Now, Christ has given us citizenship in heaven, but Satan is after us. Satan wants us to defect from heaven to earth. He wants us to flip our citizenship and become citizens of earth. Um, but the encouragement Peter issues right here is abstain from all these evils, all these influences, all this sin that's going to pull you away and cause you to change your loyalties from heaven, from Christ in the church, uh, to earth. So that's a warning and an encouragement. Um, and then he says later in that passage, the end of verse 12, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So why? So not only to protect ourselves from giving up our citizenship, but we may actually help to cause others to defect back over to Christ. Our good deeds in the face of all this adversity, if we have a good attitude and our good behavior, people can see our good deeds and that can influence them to defect the other way, to leave Satan and earth and defect over to heaven. All right, so then beginning in verse 13... We're going to move on to how we relate to our governments. And Peter writes in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Um, the government, during the time of this writing, was doing harsh things to Christians, right? They were persecuting Christians, they were not treating them justly or fairly. And there could easily be a sense among Christians of let's fight against, let's rebel against the government because they are treating us harshly or unfairly. Um, but Peter's encouraging them to be subservient to your government. Paul issued very similar encouragement to, his, um, uh, to those that he wrote to um, in Romans. Romans 13, the first like seven verses. I don't have time to read all that, but Paul issues very similar language about abide by the government, respect the government. And part of the impetus for this, and this carries over into the, the fourth relationship with our masters, is that Jesus suffered greatly upon earth because of the government, because of the Jewish leaders and the Romans as well. They, per they, they crucified him, right? Jesus did not usurp authority. Jesus did not try to overturn governments 
and mold that into something that was fair or just. Jesus put that to the side. He said, pay tribute to Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to his and give to God what belongs to God. He encouraged them to pay their taxes, even if they didn't want to um, because they felt the government was not being fair. But Jesus didn't come to fix all the social injustices. Jesus came to preach and to save souls. And that's our role today as well, right? We are not here to try to fix all of these social issues around our country. We're not here to fix the government. We're here to live as Christians, evangelize, and be examples to those around about us. Now, if we can do good, if we can help all of these social injustices, that's great. But that's not the reason why we are here. We're not here to fix the problems, just like Peter is telling them. Follow the government, be subservient to the government. He doesn't encourage them to usurp, overthrow, or try to fix all these problems. He says, Jesus was your example. Do what Jesus did. And then our last couple of minutes, uh, we don't have time to read the last of this chapter, um, but just uh, the key verse there, verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Kind of hurts a little bit to read that, right? So he's writing about masters and servants. He's telling those of you who are servants or slaves, right? Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the masters that treat you fairly, but even to the masters that treat you harshly or unfairly. Um, slavery is not an issue we have, but we have a very similar relationship with regard to employee and employer that this can apply to. Craig. So that was the other Peter story I had to talk about today that I ran out of time on. Um, and so I'll just encourage you to go back and read this. So in, um, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested. And they are instructed to no longer preach about Christ by the Jewish leaders. And what's their response? No. We can't help but preach and teach what we have seen and heard. So that's our responsibility, I think, is the answer to your question. We are to abide by our laws and government, except when they are in opposition to God's law. And following Peter's example there, he says, no, I am not going to do what you say. I am going to preach the gospel because that supersedes your law. So that's the exception to the rule that you're bringing up, is when laws of the earth try to, um, try to overcome God's law or try to supersede God's law, that's when we have biblical authority to go against the laws of the earth. All right, thanks for your attention. Y'all take a break and look forward to seeing you in worship.